Welcome to The Breakdown with James Lankford, where Oklahoma Senator James Lankford discusses policy issues in Congress. Thank you for listening today. This is The Breakdown. Senator James Langford, we're coming back to you again with another podcast from what we affectionately call The Breakdown, trying to take some of the complicated issues of the day and break them down in a longer format. A lot of times you get the news in little 20-second clips. Uh, We're going to spend a little bit more time to be able to walk through the process. And I'm seated today with Sarah Seitz. She's the legislative counsel uh, for our team. She's a legislative director for our team. She handles all the research aspects and oversees all the research aspects for the team, as well as doing a lot of our legal advice. She's an attorney and uh, very grateful that you're on our team and that uh, you're one of those folks that works for Oklahoma all the time that hardly anyone ever gets to meet um, because you're behind the, behind the scenes managing all the research, managing all the policy areas and working with legal counsel. So glad you're on board today. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, glad you're here as well. We're going to talk through the Supreme Court today, and so it's good to have somebody that's a legal counsel uh, with us because there's been a little bit of conversation about the Supreme Court, to say the least, of late. So uh, let me kind of walk through this process a little bit, and then I want you to be able to jump in. Let's just talk about this some, because when we talk about the Supreme Court, we often think about a process of those nine folks that are making decisions and doing their work, uh, and there's not a lot of publicity. They don't allow cameras into the Supreme Court. There's not any uh, really press releases or anything else. They just make statements. They release them. They go, they go do their work very, very quietly and stay non-political. But this time, uh, with Judge Kavanaugh has become exceptionally political uh, in the process. And so I want to be able to walk through how it's supposed to look and how it normally happens and then what's actually happened this time as well, and then how they handle cases and the importance of that. Uh, so a, a, a typical process that the president would nominate, uh, then they would come and meet members of the Senate, uh, then they would uh, go through and just gather evidence. That's, FBI does a full background check of them after the White House already done a check. Then there's a full background check that the FBI does. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. And then after they do that full background check, uh, then they'll start meeting with members of Congress. Uh, and it's offered to all 100 members of the Senate to be able to sit down with anyone who wants to be able to sit down. I, for instance, with Judge Kavanaugh, spent almost an hour with him in my office just going through different policy areas. We get lots of pages of documents uh, for a typical person as they come through. And then once they've gone through all those individual meetings, you get all the background, you get a chance to do reading. Then the committee will sit down in kind of a quiet, confidential setting. They'll say some questions have come up, some accusations have come up. We want to look at your finances this way. There's some things that are in private uh, that we've seen in different FBI reports. And they'll sit down as a committee, bipartisan, and to be able to go through all that with a candidate to see if there's any big issue. Because if there's any big issue, they want to address it right there and address it before it moves on. If that gets resolved, then they'll move on to uh, the Judiciary Committee hearing. It's usually a week's worth of hearings uh, where you introduce, everybody gets an option to come in, the candidate gets pummeled with questions for hours and hours and hours, and then people that testify for or against the candidate will also come in and will speak out, and then you close that down, and then there's what they call questions for the record, one more set. It's after all these other questions have been done in private, one-on-one, in a confidential setting as a group, in the judiciary meeting, then there's questions for the record. And then after that's done, then the full Senate votes. That's the typical process. And it usually takes about two months. Uh, if you um, look at the process, for instance, with Judge Kavanaugh, uh, from the time he was nominated to the time he got to the Judiciary Committee hearing, the first hearing, that is, uh, was longer than it was for Kagan or Sotomayor or for Gorsuch. It was about two months. Uh, and the typical process time is somewhere around that time period to be able to go through. So his time was actually a little longer than it has been for the previous three, but it was pretty close uh, to the same time period. Everything looked like it was clicking along. 
Uh, Judge Kavanaugh had the background check. In fact, this was his sixth background check that he'd had because he'd worked with the federal government in lots of ways before, and he'd also been a federal judge in the D.C. Circuit for the last 12 years. He uh, had the individual meetings with as many senators as wanted to be able to meet with him. Actually, 65 senators took that privilege. Uh, and then they had the confidential meeting. It was a bipartisan meeting to be able to bring up anything that was confidential, anything that's risen up to be able to talk about. No issue there. Uh, then had the Judiciary Committee hearing, and everybody saw that initial one, and then did questions for the record. Uh, in fact, what was interesting was for Judge Kavanaugh, this was before any of the sexual assault allegations, got 1,300, well, not quite, close to 1,300 total questions for the record. This is actually, he got more questions for the record than any other nominee in the history of the Supreme Court. In fact, he got more questions for the record than every other nominee for the Supreme Court in the history of the country combined got. Because typically there have been so many questions answered, by the time you get to the end, there'll be like 12 questions left. There'll be 100 questions left if it's a big one, but not many. He got almost 1,300 questions. So it was obvious trying to be able to slow the process down and to be able to bog the whole thing down. As he went through that process of all the questions of the record and got everything back in, and the committee was just about to vote, a letter shows up uh, that it popped into the media, and it was suddenly an accusation that had not come up before. Uh, and then the whole earth changed uh, in this process. And then the then everything shifted from the normal process you go through from a Supreme Court nominee to suddenly you're having to create your own process because this is not normal. Normal would be if there's an accusation, you bring it up very early in the process when it's confidential. Anyone who's accusing can talk about it in those confidential meetings. You get it resolved, and that person either resigns or steps out of the process and says, no, I'm not going to go through it, or you fully investigate it until the committee's ready to take the next step, and you don't take the next step until that confidential part's done. Well, that's not what happened this time. Uh, this time, uh, obviously, as the whole world knows at this point, uh, Dr. Ford had submitted a letter saying that she uh, remembered being assaulted uh, by Brett Kavanaugh when they were both in high school, both at a party where they were both drinking alcohol and they were both there, though they went to different schools. They had met at some country club and had gone to this house. She could remember the house or the date or all those days, but she definitely remembered his Brett Kavanaugh. So she submitted a letter, as she should have, uh, to the ranking member of the committee, uh, Democrat Dianne Feinstein, and said, I have this concern, and she submitted it very early in the process. Uh, we now know that um, Senator Feinstein's staff reached back to her and said, hey, you should get an attorney. Uh, this is very serious and encouraged her to go do that, even gave her a recommendation for which attorney to get. That is the attorney that she went and contacted and hired and then had. And so it looks like it's going through the normal process, which would be the next step would be to sit down confidentially and to be able to go through it. But that part didn't happen. Uh, the individual one-on-one -on -one meeting that Diane Feinstein had with um, – uh, Judge Kavanaugh, there was nothing brought up at that meeting. There was nothing brought up in the confidential meeting. There was nothing brought up in the broader uh, meeting with everybody on the committee. Uh, there was nothing brought up in the 1,300 questions for the record. Once all those things were done, that was normal process, then the letter got dropped out into the media. And that's why a lot of people got frustrated, like, wow, something big like this we really need to take very seriously. But now we're trying to really create a process in a tense moment rather than trying to resolve how we're going to do it now. So where it went from there uh, becomes the hard part uh, because now we've got to be able to create a process. Uh, so here, here's the interesting thing that I would, I would say with that. And Sarah, you can jump in at any point on this. Once we go through all of those processes and all those things, 
Uh, now we're trying to create a process. The hard part is the Judiciary Committee has to be able to make a decision on how they do it. Now, some folks don't understand the Judiciary Committee. Uh, these are not just staff that work uh, behind the scenes on it. They have investigative powers and authorities. So describe to us the investigative authorities that the Judiciary Committee members have. So it's not just a staff member chasing this. This is an investigator. Sure. So the committee has attorneys, investigators. Uh, they've had about 20 staff dedicated to this nomination process alone. And they're doing that work in terms of going through the background, doing an investigation. Uh, that That is the normal process for them to be on the front lines and gather that information, prepare the members, uh, get prepared for the hearings and the committee vote. And they do this all the time because they're they're always going through judges because judges all get confirmed here. So with Supreme Court, right. District Court, Circuit Court, they've got full-time investigators. That's what they do. That's correct. So they're they're very accustomed to going through the background information, all the questions for the record, as you mentioned. And so they had done that in this case as well. And when the letter came to light, they tried to go through that process again to say, let us investigate Let's share the letter with the chairman, the majority members, and go through the process. But that was stalled again, and the Democrats didn't want to have the committee staff go through that process again and insisted that it be taken out to a third party, to the, the FBI. FBI. Sure. And, and, and what's, what's funny to me is, uh, you know this, but and a lot of other folks may know as well now, the FBI actually in some ways has less authority to be able to compel someone to testify than the Senate staff do. Uh, if the FBI, when they're doing a background check, they're not doing a criminal investigation, they're doing a background check. If they come to your house and say, hey, I want to do a background check on something, you can say no. And they go, okay, well, thank you very much. And they just note, I went and tried, and they said no. If the committee staff come to you and you say no, you, they say, okay, we'll subpoena you, right. and we will compel this testimony, but you're going to be able to testify to be able to get this information. If you lie to the committee staff or you lie to the FBI, what's the difference between those two? Neither. There's, there's no difference between it? Lying to committee staff, lying to the committee, lying to the FBI carries a criminal penalty of up to five years in prison. That's kind of a big deal. It is. And uh, we, we, we watched during this because there were several accusations that came up about um, uh, Brett Kavanaugh that as, as the first accusation came uh, from Dr. Ford, and we all paused and said, Okay, we got to take a look at this. This is exceptionally serious. I wish this come out in the normal process, but we got to be able to take a look at it. Once that first one came out, all of a sudden, multiple others started uh, uh, popping up. And what was interesting to see was some of those that popped up, the media immediately put on the front page of the paper, another accuser has appeared. But what they didn't do, uh, and note, which I noticed watching some of those same papers, that they would print one day, another accuser has appeared. The committee staff uh, had it as a normal discipline to say, we've got to be able to v investigate this. When an accuser would pop up, they would contact that accuser or their attorney and would say, hey, we want to be able to get testimony. We understand there's an accusation about someone that's in front of us right now. We want to get sworn testimony from them. Several folks, as soon as they said, we want to get sworn testimony on the, under the penalty of perjury and five years in prison, under whether it's correct or not, immediately recanted and said, right. just kidding. Uh, I wanted to put an accusation out there, but I don't want to be sworn in and I want to recant my story. The media sources didn't print the recant. For instance, there was a, a, a big one that came out about he was on Rhode Island and he was on a boat and there was this right. assault. And that got lots of publicity for a day. 
But within 24 hours, that person had recanted and said, no, that never happened. Right. And with that one, the committee referred that particular instance to the Department of Justice for a potential criminal investigation. Right. Because you're lying to the committee. Right. Because you can't just come up and lie to Congress mm-hmm. and just make a story up on that. And so w- what we watched was as soon as that happened, uh, somewhat we, we got fewer different random accusations at that point. What we want to get is the real stories and not belittle someone um, or not ignore someone. If we have someone that's been and experienced sexual assault, that's a serious issue that we want to be able to take exceptionally serious. And when people make false accusations, that diminishes from those who have made a real accusation to be able to walk through it. And so for us, we're trying to be able to separate the fact from fiction in this uh, as quickly as possible and to be able to go through the process. Uh, so we had several folks. We had one from Delaware that, that wrote in that said, um, you know, there was a, a party at the fraternity that Brett Kavanaugh used to go to. He had already graduated from Yale, but he might have gone back to that party, and I hear it was a pretty wild party. Well, that got big media story for a while, that there was a big party at a fraternity, but it was after literally after he had already gone and didn't even go to that party. Uh, there was a big accusation that came from someone in Colorado who said, hey, I saw him with a person he was dating that he assaulted them. Uh, And so that became a big story for a while until the person that he was dating during that time period came forward and said, hey, I was the person he was dating then, and that never, ever happened. Uh, Of course, the very famous now Swetnick allegations from Michael Avenatti, uh, who is this attorney that's running for president on the Democratic ticket uh, that has made this big scene and trying to bring up and say that – uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Mark Judge had been involved in gang rapes, and there were hundreds of people that were involved in this. The problem is none of the other hundreds of people have ever appeared on it, and the FBI took a cursory look at it and said that's not credible. Uh, in fact, for uh, uh, Ms. Ramirez in that allegation and also for Swetnick, uh, the um, uh, New York Times even took a look at it and did all the background contacted tons of folks and they wouldn't even run those stories saying that's not that's not even credible even the times looked at it and said that's not a credible story and the fbi certainly has done that as well and for both of those individuals the committee reached out to their attorneys requesting an interview both denied um, even though they denied the committee still questioned judge kavanaugh about each of those allegations his statement back to the committee is subject to the same penalty of five years in prison. So he was questioned for both of those as well under that same penalty, and they didn't uh, come back with anything. But in both of those cases, they refused to speak to the committee. But the committee still did its due diligence in talking to Judge Kavanaugh about those, and he faced the same potential penalty for lying as well. Yeah. So then then it comes down to a big hearing that, that comes out. Uh, where it is this dramatic hearing that the entire nation paused uh, to be able to watch. Uh, with Dr. Ford uh, giving testimony, very emotional, very passionate about her testimony, uh, saying I 100% think this is Kavanaugh that did this. And then we have Brett Kavanaugh coming with a very impassioned, I have been accused of gang rape and of sexual assault, and that never, ever happened, not to Dr. Ford, not to anyone, and was very passionate about protecting not only his name, Uh, and his family, but protecting his kids and everyone else to say, this is not true. So now you've got two stories side by side, one saying absolutely 100%, the other one saying absolutely not true 100%. What do you do with that? Uh, So you you do what we did with it. 
uh, you start looking at the facts and interviews around it. So the staff had done some initial interviews as well, be able to get some of the details. Obviously now famously now there was a pause for a week. Uh, many of the Democrat colleagues were very specific to say, Anita Hill, it took three days to do the background work from the FBI. Let's give this three days. Let's give it four days. Let's give it a week. Let's give some time for the FBI to be able to do the same kind of work as well, like what was happening with the Anita Hill accusations. A background check on it from the FBI uh, is, is not a criminal investigation. It's going and getting testimony from everybody. And the focus of the background investigation is find eyewitnesses. So what they did with the Anita Hill time period to find everyone that worked with them immediately around during that time period. It's what they did in this case as well. It's what they do in every case where they go and try to find those immediate eyewitnesses. So the FBI then went with a very deliberate task uh, to go visit with everybody that Dr. Ford had said was there or was around it. And then also to be able to find all the individuals uh, that were on Brett Kavanaugh's calendar, saying this is a possible event date. So the person's house it was at, everyone else that could have been there that even Dr. Ford didn't name, but everyone who would have been around that time period, get them all and to do interviews one-on-one and to be able to visit with them. They did that. They also went to uh, Mrs. Ramirez because she had not testified before in front of the hearing, had not been sworn in that same way. Uh, So then went uh, to her and visited with her directly and got from her a list of names of everyone that she said was around it would be aware of her accusation of Brett Kavanaugh exposing himself at a party. So they went and got all of those things and all those individuals, collected those, returned them back to us. Now, there's been some criticism from some of my Democratic colleagues saying they should have interviewed basically people that were not there. They should have interviewed more people, but the FBI's practice is not to interview people that were not there. Their practice is to go interview the people that were there at that time. That would be firsthand information, not hearsay or secondhand information. So they collected and went through all of those interviews, brought all those back to us, and we had the opportunity to be able to read those as we do every background check. This is now the seventh background check uh, that Brett Kavanaugh has had. And if people don't understand what the background check is, it's not a simple document. There's a lot to it with a lot of testimony. And when the FBI has a background check, they are thorough. Uh, They're going to your old neighborhood. They're visiting with people that lived in the neighborhood, everybody you worked with. You don't give them the list. This is not like a job application. Here's a reference list. Go talk to these people. They all like me. Mm -hmm. The FBI goes searching for people that knew you but are not on your list and to be able to connect with those individual people. And with every person they ask, they always ask some very specific questions about uh, any kind of illegal activity or anything that would be inappropriate. And certainly they ask about alcohol use every single time. Brett Kavanaugh has had over 150 people that have been contacted by the FBI over the course of 20 years. All 150 of those have asked about, does he abuse alcohol? Is he inappropriate in alcohol? All 150 people said, no, he does not have a problem with alcohol. And all the people that said that uh, that Dr. Ford said were there or that uh, Ms. Ramirez said were there, all of them said, I don't know anything about this. So here's the challenge that we have. We don't have a he said, she said. We have a he said, she said, they said situation where every single person that Dr. Ford said was there or that Ms. Ramirez said was there all say, I don't remember anything like that. So we're trying to be able to piece together information back from 30 some odd years ago. But it's important because you're going to take every one of these allegations seriously. But the overwhelming evidence is sitting with Brett Kavanaugh's side. Even the people that Dr. Ford said these folks will be, they, they can testify to what happened, actually testified to the opposite. In addition to that, we've got 150 people from previous background investigations in the FBI that haven't seen anything like that. 
We had 65 ladies that came out that knew Brett Kavanaugh in high school and college that all came forward and said, never saw anything like that. And all of Brett Kavanaugh's girlfriends from high school, college, in his 20s, all came forward and said, never saw anything like that. So it becomes this big issue of like, what do you do with an allegation when there's this mountain of evidence to the opposite on it? Right. And now we've seen all of this uncorroborated evidence. And so there's been a shift to focus on Judge Kavanaugh's temperament, um, which has been interesting to see when it was witness after witness after witness. And that was the focus. And now it has shifted to he's not fit to serve because of his temperament, not necessarily because of the accusations that have been. Yeah. And and it ends up looking more like a political ploy than it is honoring the accusation at that point, Uh, because if the focus is really on the accusation, the mountain of evidence has now come out to be able to refute it um, is is something has to be challenged and people have to look at it and be able to make a decision based on the evidence on it. But now that it's at, you know what, when he came to testify, he was too mad. He pointed to the Democrats and said, this is a smear campaign, when quite frankly, it really looks like it's a smear campaign. There was every reason to be able to do this kind of serious allegation much earlier rather than to hold it to the very end. I don't think Dr. Ford was involved in that, but somebody from Capitol Hill was involved in trying to be able to drag that out and make this into a political spectacle, and she got used in the process for this. So the challenge is, because he strongly defended himself and said, absolutely was not me, does that make make him not qualified to be able to be on the judge, uh, be on the bench. When for 12 years he served in the D.C. Circuit Court, uh, he's had great judicial temperament. He's been outstanding. He had top marks from the American Bar Association. Everyone that worked around him in the court all said this is primary. All the attorneys that work with him all were supportive of how he handled cases, how fair he was, how independent he was. It's almost to me like for those of us that are college football fans, when you see like a player that really takes a cheap shot at somebody, grabs their face mask, twists around their helmet, you know, uh, hits them after the play is over, and then eventually the other player hits back, always the flag gets thrown on the guy that gets hit hit back. It, It almost feels like that, that people are really taking some cheap shots at him, making accusations of him that are completely unsubstantiated. And when he pushed back, they're like, see, you push back. So you're out now. You, you can't do this, right. which I think is not fair to him. He, he's, he's not only a judge, but he's a human being as well. Mm-hmm. And if he pushes back, that doesn't necessarily reflect on who he is as a judge. But it just says, hey, it's not fair when someone does a false accusation. The whole thing about his drinking, there are people that are around D.C. that are yelling, he's a drunk. You know what? 150 people have been interviewed over the last 20 years about his drinking habits. He's been very clear, as he said over and over again, hey, I like beer. I like beer. I was like, okay, enough. I get I get you <laughs> like beer. Stop saying it. But there's been people for 20 years that have been interviewed about him that have said, I don't see a drinking problem for him. And there's a lot of folks. I, I, I personally don't drink, uh, but there's a lot of folks that in their life, in their normal daily life, even on weekdays, that became a big issue to say, do you drink on weekdays sometimes? Uh, implying somehow that he's an alcoholic. Uh, that, that got pushback on him for that. Uh, they, there were some folks that have stepped out and said, well, he lied under oath because on the Ramirez allegation, he said he learned about it from the story. But now we find out he kind of knew about it a little bit before when the reporter called him. So he knew about it before the story was printed. And so he really lied under oath on that. It's kind of a technicality. I look at it and I go, Give me a break. If you don't like him politically and you don't agree with his judicial philosophy, just say it. 
but to, to say that there's some secret something that's there that we can try to catch him on some kind of technicality is not fair to not only to him, but to any candidate in the future as well. This is not trying to trip people up. This is trying to help determine what's your judicial philosophy and are you going to be fair on the bench? The clear thing that came from him over and over again is his passion is what the law says, the law means, follow the law. I may not like the law, but that's what the law says. Right. And so that's what I'm really looking for from a judge, and that's what he's repeated. And quite frankly, that's what he's done for years and years and years on the bench, just followed the law. Right. And I think a lot of times, in, in this case in particular, people have forgotten that he is a sitting judge. And the process to become a judge on the circuit court is the same as it is to be a judge on the Supreme Court. And so he's gone through this before. He's been a judge for 12 years. He's not had an issue raised about his temperament or uh, not following the law. And I think you have to take that into account, coupled with the fact that you have uncorroborated evidence against him now. And he has he has not only provided sworn statements under oath, he has given statements to the committee staff, to the FBI, all with a, a serious criminal penalty. And so taking that into account, I think, has to come into play. And regarding his temperament, you mentioned he's a human being and he's defending himself. He's also acting as a husband and a father mm-hmm. in that moment as well to see his wife and his children attacked and threatened. And so I think that part of him came through more than anything else, maybe right. in that moment that this is my wife and my kids that are that are being put into this position as well. And Dr. Ford was a horrible situation for her and the threats that came to her. She had to move out of her house and all this attention and people parking in her front yard that were media folks trying to be able to catch a glimpse of her moving. Insanity on this. It's not fair to her. It wasn't fair to the Kavanaugh family. Uh, it was wasn't what wasn't right the way the whole way that this was handled. It could have been handled so different, and to be able to get the information out, to be able to do the research, do the background check, and to be able to hand out the right way through the process. So right. I, I, I kind of look at this in a couple of ways: lessons learned, uh, and w- what happens. Uh, talk me through real quick about just the court. Kavanaugh sitting on the court. What does that mean? Is he on the court now? Then suddenly he can just grab any case he wants in the country and say, I'm here now in the Supreme Court. I'm going to do anything I want. How does the court actually work on cases? Right. So it's interesting that his confirmation vote is coming this week. The court actually came back into session this week as well, started their term. And so um, the Supreme Court obviously gets asked to take up thousands of cases every year. Everybody says, I'm going to take this to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says what back to them? Typically, no. Yeah. Of the seven to 8,000 cases that come before them uh, to ask for to be appealed, they take about 80 to 100 of those. Um, even before that happens, four of the justices have to vote to take it. So there's a long process, um, and a case doesn't start at the Supreme Court. You either right. have to work the entire way through the state system, or you start in a federal district court, and go to the appellate court and then the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And so it can take years before a case even gets appealed to that level. And even when it does, they don't have to take it. So it's not a situation where nine justices can all of a sudden say, we'd like to take up a particular issue or a case on their own. It it doesn't work that way. They're not legislators. They don't just decide, here's what I want to do. They they, They respond to the cases that come at them. 
And even that, there's a narrowing down to basically 1% of the cases that come at them. They actually take and they agree, okay, these are cases that are important uh, enough to be able to look at and to be able to determine what to be able to do, or there's, there's important precedent that we have to be able to resolve. Right, absolutely. So lessons learned on this. The, as the court begins its session and all the things begin to move in the session, we have a full court again, which we can function with seven, we can function with eight, we can function with nine. There is no constitutional number for that, but they're, they're back to the nine. What is the full number? Um, but I, I look at it long term on a couple lessons. One is politically. We, we, we cannot have political discourse that breaks down into personal attacks, even in our political discourse. The past couple of weeks, the attack has been if you don't support um, Kavanaugh, then you don't support due process. You're a person that's terrible. You, you won't protect the rights of the innocent. You're a terrible human being. If you uh, do support Kavanaugh, then you're a person that ignores the rights of the accused, that you don't care about sexual assault, and you're a terrible person. In fact, you've gone evil uh, in this process. You're an evil person because you don't believe those that are accused. That's a real breakdown of it. Mm -hmm. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of ladies that have experienced sexual assault in their life. Those need to be taken seriously and need to be addressed. They need to be able to go through the court. There are folks that have been wrongly accused as well. Our system also protects those individuals as well to be able to figure out how to be able to resolve these cases to make sure that they get resolved that's fair to everyone, but also justice is brought to the end of it. We've got to be able to still continue to honor that situation. And as I look at this long term, not only in how we deal with uh, conversations about politics and how we treat each other when we disagree on something, it doesn't become a belittling us-them thing that it doesn't break down every nomination now into this terrible, ruthless attacks of uh, accusations. And now because you're accused, you've got to drop out. Uh, that could go both ways uh, all the way through this. It can't just become a, let me just look at your high school time period and you drank too much in high school. I, I can't begin to tell you how many senators that I've talked to in the last couple of weeks that have said, oh, I really hope my next campaign, they don't go back to my high school time because it's really ugly. Right. So that, that you, we, we can't have that conversation all the time. And what message does that send to people that are considering running for office yeah. or for applying to be, uh, you know, a judge and going through that application and um, why would someone choose to serve and put their name out there and expose their family in that way right. if this is the process. If, if an accusation can shut it down and destroy your life and your right. family. But I look at it finally just in my own perspective. In 20 plus years of youth ministry and working with a lot of families, I always still go back and try to look through that lens. That's just who I am. I, I look at this culturally and ask a really hard question. Are parents willing and would they sit down with their daughters and to say, if something happens to you, we need to tell you that we love you and we're not going to blame you. We're not going to accuse you, but we need to know so we can help you. So many girls don't go and tell their parents what happened in an assault because they think their parents are going to condemn them for you shouldn't have been there. You shouldn't have been around that. You shouldn't have been in that situation. Parents need to be able to go back to their girls and say, we love you. We're going to walk you through this. But a boy cannot do that to you and to be able to deal with it quickly. I hope those conversations are happening. Mm -hmm. I hope parents of boys and girls are sitting down and talking about alcohol in a different way. 
As I go through the FBI background checks of this whole mess of all the accusations, the common theme of all of it was underage drinking of every single person, of Brett Kavanaugh, of Dr. Ford, of Mr. Ramirez, of all the different witnesses that were named in every direction. It was underage drinking for every single one of them. I hope that parents would sit down with their kids and would say, hey, maybe you're not mature enough to be able to handle this alcohol at 15 years old. I talk to way too many parents that say, well, I just want my kids to not drink and drive because I don't want them to hurt somebody else or hurt themselves. But they would go to that party, they can drink, they can just stay there. Or they can come to my house and drink. Well, maybe kids aren't ready to make those big decisions. And maybe they'll do some really foolish things when they're 15, 16, 17 years old. Maybe we should be parents and be able to step in and help them make good decisions. And later in life, if they choose to be able to drink, that's going to be their decision on it. But at the moment that we can be parents to be able to help them with that, maybe we should. Uh, and that'd be something that we could help our kids with in the future. Mm-hmm. I always look for ways to say not only what are the big issues that we need to resolve, but what are the cultural issues that we should step in and engage on. And I don't know how that works in the days ahead for families and what that really looks like. But I hope for the sake of the country we can pull back together on a really heated series of debates on a really painful, emotional set of issues. But I hope for the sake of our families in the future as well that we have those hard conversations and we're willing to step in and love our kids enough to be able to put some protection around them and say, I'm going to guard you until you're wise enough to be able to make some decisions on some of these hard, complicated issues and to be able to make sure that I can help you grow to be a healthy adult. Uh, that makes good, wise decisions. Sarah, I, I appreciate you joining me for this conversation. These are tough Thank emotional uh, issues. Uh, there's a lot of legal issues that go into this. I appreciate all the legal work that you do and the research leadership that you have uh, with our team here. And uh, hopefully a lot of Oklahomans will get a chance to meet you and to be able to know the quality of the work that you do for them uh, every single day. And I uh, appreciate that very much. And look Thank forward you, to getting and digging through a, another conversation. This is a much longer podcast than we typically do. Uh, but it's a much tougher issue uh, than what we're taking on, and we're trying to break down some of the things that you only get 30 seconds of into a, into a longer conversation, and this one was even longer than longer. So bless y'all. Thanks. We look forward to the ongoing dialogue. Continue to stay connected with us, langford.senate.gov, or to be able to reach out to us by phone as well, and you can get all the numbers there on our website. Bless y'all.